Now, one of the challenges about the landing on the 15th is you have to do it in two stages, and you've got to do it at absolute high tide. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. We're honored to have with us historian Curtis Utz from Naval History and Heritage Command to discuss the Korean conflict in Incheon on this anniversary, September 15th. Curtis, welcome to Preble Hall. It's good to see you back here. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, how did you start uh, in your career as a historian? Um, well, my career as a historian, you know, started really when I was still an undergraduate. I was actually a... Where was that? Uh, University of Maryland College Park, um, and uh, during my senior year, I actually worked as a senior, I was a historical interpretive technician for the National Park Service, as, as well as completing my senior year. I was, I was a temporary employee. Was that in D.C.? Yes. Where? Uh, at Arlington House, and um, did, did that for my nine months sort of came out of it, and I'd always wanted to work for the Park Service, and I said, you know, I would love doing work with the Park Service, but boy, this is a tough row, and it's not paying too good. So at that point, I go back, I decide, okay, I'm going to try for graduate school, ended up going to graduate school at University of Maryland College Park as well, and I worked with John Samita. Um, Did my master's thesis on carrier aviation and policy in the United States Navy uh, in the late 1930s in the run-up to World War II. Got my master's in 89, then uh, did some contract historical work and um, put in for, again, another temporary billet that actually John Samita let a couple of us know about with uh, what was then the Naval Historical Center in the contemporary history branch and I was hired into that position I started in August of 92 Um, and there I started working on a series of uh, short histories um, that were designed to try to get uh, junior officers and enlisted to read more history Um, As my boss said at the time, you know, we want you to do good, solid research, write everything up. My boss was Ed Meralda. Then we're going to strip out all the footnotes because, you know, we don't want to scare them to death. And, you know, lots of lots of pictures, lots of maps, um, good descriptive captions, you know, sort of more or less almost magazine format. And the two products that I produced was one of those booklet histories on the Cuban Missile Crisis and then the Navy's role in the Inchon Landing. Left there for a better opportunity as a historian with the Defense Intelligence Agency. To be honest, they had more money. Um, and then I came, nicer facility too. Um, you know, Down it, at it was Air Force it, Base, yeah. And and then I came back to Naval Historical Center in 2003 when there was a chance for me to run the old aviation history branch, which was my background and field and ran that we went through a reorg in 08 i was shifted to running the archives which i did through early 2014 and at that point i was shifted onto a project uh with dr tom hone who he brought in as a contractor to do a centennial history of the office of chief naval operations 
which we worked through and did, and hopefully that will be out uh, later this fall. Um, a lot of teething problems working through stuff because we go all the way from an actually before the beginning up till uh, Admiral Greenert's time. At Naval History and Heritage Command and in your organization, do you decide what to write about or is that driven by uh, the chain of command or from outside requests? It's a mix. Um, sometimes we, we, we've got a little more leeway um, but sometimes it's like, yeah, what do we need to do? The OpNav History Project, that was something that came out of Captain Jerry Hendricks, also Dr. Jerry Hendricks, mm-hmm. who's also spoken here. And, and he was like, this is something we really need to do because so few people actually understand the origins of OpNav. And sometimes we have to respond to specific requests for specific types of products, or we know that there are general types of products. I know you, you, you've spoken to Dr. Ryan Peaks, and we, we've been doing a lot more work with acquisition and development recently because... Is, is that a gap in our understanding is how the <clears throat> the systems commands have operated over the past, I don't know, 50 or 60 years once they, they switched over from the the, um, the we, old system, right? Yeah, the old system of, that had been 100 years, it had been yeah, around the, for 100 the, the years. The bureaus had yeah. been around a long time, and, and there was a constant problem uh, in many ways with the bureaus between, you know, the guys who are generally seen as line officers and then there, there were the people in the bureaus. But one of the things I think is misunderstood um, was some of the bureaus, um, you had line officers going in and out of them all the time. Bureau of Ordnance, Bureau of Aeronautics, uh, Bureau of Navigation, which eventually becomes BUPERS. I mean, Early Burke does a couple of tours in, in Buord, you know, these being assigned to the bureaus wasn't seen as a death sentence uh, for your career. Radford, Misher on the aviation side, multiple tours in, in Buair. So, but, but the thing is understanding how weapons acquisition has changed and understanding what are the critical technologies, how do things change, and just understanding that, you know, the, the requirements for the companies that must construct more advanced weapon systems and the skills that are needed by the labor force have changed tremendously compared to what we saw in World War II or even in the early stages of the Cold War. Is it more difficult now to develop a system because you don't have as large of an industrial base or it's simply changed because the technology has changed? Again, kind of a combination of both. There is a a much more limited industrial base to work with. There is a much, much smaller skill set to do some of the very, very highly skilled things because looking at what changes, uh, and this is a discussion Tom Hone and I had in writing the OpNav book, what's the critical technology in, say, ships and aviation? It's not the plane, it's not the airframe, it's not the ship, it's, it's, you know, not the power plant, it's the software. Our last guest, Chris Cavus, longtime journalist, was on for our last episode, and I had asked him about, we were talking about Defense Acquisition University and the program managers who come in for two to three years at NAVC or NAVAIR uh, to manage, whether it's the, you know, the communication system or Tomahawk or whatever. Is there any 
uh, coordination between NHHC and Defense Acquisition University or the Systems Commands when a program manager comes in to try to give them a, a general brief because some a lot of times this is somebody who may have just come out of the fleet and doesn't have any or much experience they rely a lot on their deputy who's usually a civilian who's gone through these courses but to give them some some historical sense of how systems have developed over time and what commonalities there common problems common opportunities there have been you know, even in the 20th century or late 20th century? Um, generally, there was very little of that. Um, in you know, I've, I've got almost 30 years working around DOD. We've seen more of that recently, where people have come back and said, okay, how did we do things in different time frames? Because the thing that has changed in, in my working lifetime is, okay, we're beginning to see, okay, how do we deal with peer or near-peer competitors? We haven't had to worry about that for a while. And so they're saying, okay, how did people deal with problems in the past? Well, one of your fields of expertise is Korea and Incheon, so I want to get to that. Tell us about the end of World War II and the status of the Navy as it's approaching, 1940, say, 1949. What, what condition are they in? Well, the Navy had had, along with all the other forces, tremendous downsizing after World War II. World, you know, at the end of World War II, you have over 12 million men and women in uniform. The Navy alone has over 1,300 commissioned hulls you know, numerous, I mean, literally thousands of landing craft, thousands of aircraft. We had, what, 100 aircraft carriers, both, you know, the, the, the fleet carriers and the light. I'm going to say, uh, you look at the fleets, yeah, the lights, the and the escort carriers. Yeah, yeah there's, there's tons of these carriers. And um, by the time you get to 1949, using carriers as an example, you know, you've got... Six fleet carriers in commission, six CVs. They're all late-built Essexes. Some of them actually completed after World War II. And, and three in the Atlantic, three in the Pacific, and in the Pacific, you've only got two CVEs. Not quite sure how many CVEs we had in the Atlantic, but the CVEs, their job is to do ASW, anti-submarine warfare. And... The fleet carriers, the CVs, they are a mixed bag of fighters and fighter attack or straight out attack aircraft. And so, you know, very small. Everything else, same thing. Massive, massive downsizing. Why do we get into the Korean conflict? I'm going to call it the Korean conflict because that's, I think that's how we grew up with it, but we know right. it's a war. What are the causes of of this conflict, this well, war? Well, in the immediate post-war era, you know, people know far more about occupation in Europe. Well, there's also occupation forces in uh, Asia. Um, lots of Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, you know, were form, you know, were colonies of, of the French, the Dutch, the British. They went back in, but in a place like Korea, which essentially had been occupied by the Japanese, uh, since the Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s, um, 
that was divided for occupation purposes between the area north of the 38th parallel, which had Soviet troops for occupation, and south of that were U.S. troops on occupation duty. And then, of course, you've got U.S. forces doing occupation duty in Japan and Okinawa as well. But uh, so you, you have this subdivide, um, and each side more or less ensures it in Korea that, okay, somebody we can rely upon is going to be in charge. In the North, it's the beginning of the Kim regime. And, you know, the North Korean People's Party, Communist Party, very authoritarian government. In the South, you have Syngman Rhee, uh, who had been educated in the United States, spent a lot of time in the United States, who becomes president of the Republic of Korea. And, but they also have issues uh, in, in both states with people who sort of oppose uh, their regimes and they utilize their military and police forces. And, and this includes the South to be fairly repressive uh, with opposition. So, so there were opponents to, uh, to Kim's, uh, was it grand, was it grandfather now? Yeah, grandfather. Yeah. Uh, but there, were, there was a, some opposition to him in North Korea. Yes, but very, very quickly eliminated. Um, the, um, the, I mean, this is the case, I mean, in, in, in places, by and large, that the Soviets occupied, yeah, they, they, they know who they want in charge, and they definitely know who they don't want in charge. Um, so what happens is occupation forces withdraw in 1949, um, in the South, you essentially have an army which is built for very, very moderate defense. We were actually, I mean, one thing that I must point out about the Koreans, whether it's South Korea or North Korea, these people are Korean nationalists. They want to unify. And one of the reasons why we were loath to provide the re-government with anything that could remotely smack of being offensive, tanks, medium and heavy artillery, you know, anything more than a training air force. We, we didn't want him deciding he was going to reunify Korea. In the North, again, What was the fear of, of reunifying Korea at the time? Was it simply that we, we might see more, if, the, if there were to be some sort of, well, this is the question, would there have been a, a democratic election or would it simply have been a takeover uh, well, of one by the other, North by uh, the south by the north. It's going to rec whichever side is going to attempt to get their point across is going to have to do it militarily. So, the Soviets have no such issue with the North Koreans. North Koreans have a larger army; it's about thirty-five, forty thousand men larger. They're equipped with T thirty-four tanks. They're equipped with medium and heavy artillery. They have good. Soviet combat aircraft from World War II, all propeller-driven Yaks illusions. Um, you know, they, they are a, a much more solid force. Plus, one of the other things that needs to be recalled is it, in the North Korean army, uh, in their initial formation, two of those divisions were ethnic Koreans who'd actually been fighting in Mao's army during the Chinese Civil War. And in fact, there were two more divisions of ethnic Koreans that Kim kept asking Mao, I need these guys back, I need these guys back. And um, so that's, that's sort of the status you're in. And the United States, you know, 
has a lot of issues to worry about, not only in Europe, but in the Far East. And there was a speech given by uh, Secretary of State Acheson in January of 1950 where he talks about essentially what, what are our concerns in the Far East. In neither Taiwan, which is where the nationalists have gone to in China, or Korea are mentioned. The Philippines are mentioned, the Marianas are mentioned, Japan is mentioned. Was that on purpose or just one of these diplomatic mistakes? I, I think it was one of those things where we <clears throat> did not, China's a little bit of a different issue, but we really didn't think that anybody would see any advantage to a military action in Korea. And, and Atchison was also concerned, as, as was the administration, okay, where's our priority? How far are we going to get spread? How thin will we get? In Europe was always the priority. And so there's repeated border incidents uh, in early 1950, um, primarily aggressiveness by the North Koreans, and suddenly all of that stops in May. And we've got people saying this, this, you know, something's not adding up here. We really don't think much is going on there. The only U.S. military presence in Korea is the military advisory group. It's very How large know, was that? You know, a couple of hundred people primarily working with training and organizing their army and getting the leadership to, to, to work and look at stuff. And they just... Um, you know, when the North Koreans launched their invasion on 25 June, you know, essentially everybody is caught entirely off guard. I mean, they have literally, in some cases, relayed the train tracks that go into South Korea and are putting forces across the border via train and offloading, you know, five, six miles into South Korea. Um, so uh, this was one of the cases of it was... United States, many other people saw this as clear aggression. The issue was taken to the Security Council of the United Nations. It's the kind of things the UN was set up to do. And in something that you will never see happen again, um, the UN Security Council votes. There is no Soviet veto to intervene in Korea to protect the Republic of Korea. Why is there no Soviet veto? The Soviets have been boycotting meetings because they want the Republic of China's seat on the Security Council replaced by the Chinese communists under Mao. And so the Soviets completely uh, misjudged how fast this action might go through. Um, it was, it was a, a near unanimous vote. I think there were a couple of abstentions. In, including, you know, nominally communist Yugoslavia, um, and and uh, and I believe India abstained as well. But anyway, otherwise, it's like let's go. Soviets don't miss any more Security Council meetings. Um, so it it so now you got UN authorization, but the United States had also already given authorization to get its people evacuated. Um, also, uh, people were being evacuated by our, uh, you know, people of our allies, primarily getting the diplomats out of Seoul. Um, U.S. Air Force assets, one occupation duty in Japan, provided air cover uh, 
to ships and aircraft that were evacuating people. They, in, in the first several days of the war, they shoot down seven North Korean aircraft um, that are attempting to intervene. And, um, but at this point, as far as what sources do we have from the naval side to do very much, you essentially have got uh, the Seventh Fleet which is stationed in the Philippines. And then there's also a small occupation force, well, not all that small, uh, in Japan. The occupation force in Japan, as far as the Army is concerned, is four of its 14 divisions. But all of these divisions are severely under strength, undermanned, uh, under-equipped. They're there basically on occupation duty. Um, the Air Force has assets in the Far East. Again, primarily fighters, mostly uh, the um, F-80 uh, jet aircraft, um, you know, designed for air defense. It's, it's basically the Navy's first, or not Navy, pardon me, Air Force's first jet aircraft for, uh, you know, these type of operations, but they have very short legs. They really aren't designed for ground attack, although they're, they're willing to use them for that. Plus, they simply cannot be operated from the rough air fields. And, and so the, the, the drawbacks with the F-80 is it has short range. It's not really designed for ground attack. Plus, it essentially requires fairly long, solid runways. It is not designed to be operated in the rough field conditions you're going to have uh, on the Korean airfields. So it's not like we can throw them forward into South Korea. Um, there were some of the older aircraft they had, such as the F-82 twin Mustangs, which could work uh, there. But again, you know, and, and they've got, you know, I think one wing of light attack aircraft in the whole Far East, some B-29, some transportation assets. But as, as far as the Navy, you've got an occupation force in Japan uh, under COM, NAV, uh, Far East, and, and he's got a force in Japan, but then there's also 7th Fleet. Well, 7th Fleet, again, based out of the uh, Philippines, one Essex-class carrier, two light cruisers, actually only one cruiser, one heavy cruiser. The other cruiser's up with the force in Japan. A handful of destroyers, submarines, some mine warfare ships, most of which were in reduced commission, and a handful of logistic ships, and uh, two patrol squadrons as far as aviation assets. That's the entire 7th Fleet. Uh, the forces in Japan include essentially another handful of destroyers, one loner submarine, um, one light cruiser. Interestingly enough, also on occupation duty is one Australian uh, frigate. Um, but... The one thing that you have in Japan, and it's there uh, for, uh, you know, it's not usually part of the force, is a uh, amphibious group under Rear Admiral James Doyle, which consists of five ships. And they're actually there because the commander-in-chief in the Far East, Douglas MacArthur, had asked the Navy to provide that because he understood that the Army was losing what little ability it had to do stuff with amphibious operations. So he said, hey, get me some ships out here. Let me start working with some of these guys who are here on occupation duty. And so, you know, that was, we, we were quite lucky that that force was there because not just the amphibious ships, 
you know, there's a Marine Corps training team. Um, and, and you've got Doyle, who is an outstanding amphibious officer, had, had been, at, you know, in the Guadalcanal campaign and worked as a planner back on King's staff. So, but, but again, it's, it's a very, very scratch force. Why doesn't the U.S. declare war? Um, that is a question that I, I think that, you know, we are working under the auspices of the U.N. It's like, you know, this is part of what the U.N. was set up to do. We're resisting aggression. And so since the U.N. has called for this, we've agreed to support it. And I don't think initially anybody thinks that this is going to be all that hard. MacArthur himself is convinced, oh, guess what? When they start realizing they're coming up against U.S. forces, particularly U.S. forces on the ground, you know, they're going to pack their game up and go back home because they, they don't want to deal with this. Of course, this is not what happens. You know, there's the the difficulties, to put it mildly, of Task Force Smith, where, you know, you have this small force that has flown over uh, from Japan, you know, an understrength battalion with one attached artillery battery, and basically the North Koreans don't care that they're Americans. You know, they, they put up the fight that they can with the limited forces they have, but they're going up against, you know, Infantry backed up by T-34 tanks, and, um, you know, it's like, okay, this, this is not going to work. Is that why throughout early 1950, the, the North Koreans just simply drive through most of South Korea right to the Pusan perimeter? Yeah, they are, you know, they, they very much shatter um, the South Korean military pretty much in the first several days. Now... The South Korean army tries to keep reorganizing, tries to put more forces in. We put more forces in. I mean, eventually we've got three of the four divisions that are in Japan, in Korea. Uh, and, and the Navy, of course, is very critical to, to getting some of the forces there. Doyle's people take over uh, the 1st Cav Division. Uh, in an administrative landing, uh, they they were hoping that at some point maybe we could use these forces uh, more aggressively to uh, envelop the North Koreans. But things things were uh, going to pieces way way too fast. Um, we've got aviation assets involved. We also bring up uh, a large portion of the Seventh Fleet into. Uh, the waters around Japan and around Korea, and we begin launching airstrikes from them. And also very early in the war, again, in, in response to the UN call is the, the British Far Eastern Squadron, which is in Hong Kong, mobilizes and comes north, and they have a light aircraft carrier, HMF's Triumph. And they're also involved with airstrikes, but that it's we're trying to figure out how to get these people, the North Koreans, slowed down. And eventually, as you say, we set up the Pusan perimeter. Now, one thing to note about Pusan, because it's a very important port and very critical to being able to supply, maintain, and reinforce it. Pretty much at the most south, if you're looking at a map, the south, most southeastern portion of, of South Korea. Correct. But one of the more significant naval actions that's often overlooked is that on the first night of the war, a, the, the only sort of quote-unquote modern 
uh, ship that the South Koreans have, which is one of our subchasers from World War II, uh, the Bak Dusan, actually intercepts a thousand-ton armed merchantman trying to get into Pusan with, a, with a roughly 600 North Korean troops on board, and the South Korean subchaser engages in a gun battle and sinks the ship. Um, because you can well imagine if these guys get into Pasan, even if they can't hold it, what would be the level of destruction they could do to the port facility? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was, you know, I, you know, it's like, okay, right Pete, you know, right ship, right person, right time, right. And just the South Koreans, you know, take care of the threat. What was the origin of the idea to land at Incheon? And just to set things up, where is Incheon located compared to, say, Pusan? Um... Incheon is roughly uh, 175 miles northwest of Pusan. It is on the west coast of South Korea, very close to the 38th parallel and very close to uh, the capital, Seoul. It is essentially the port for Seoul. Um, the idea of landing at Incheon is actually something that came about very early in the conflict. Again, you know, when they thought they would be able to uh, hold the North Korean army at some point, MacArthur had actually said, if we can land and get behind him at Incheon, and he wanted to use the uh, 1st Cavalry Division, which was one of the uh, uh, occupation divisions in Japan, and despite its name, it's an infantry division. Um, but things moved too quick. But MacArthur kept that in the back of his head because what he saw was, was if you can land at Incheon, move east, see Seoul, also see, seize Kimpo Airfield. Seoul is a major choke point in North Korean line of communications. If you look at the road and rail lines that run south out of North Korea, three of them end up passing through the Seoul area. It's only a very light system you have that is east of the mountains along the east coast that, that would not be impacted by this. And if you can seize that, essentially choke off their line of communication, um, you can effectively, you know, either, you know, force them to retreat or if you have forces advancing from Pusan, you know, you've got them between two forces. Now, sadly, I, I read William Manchester's book, American Caesar, very late in life, actually just in this past year. It's an interesting quote. He said, the, the enemy, enemy commands uh, will reason that no one would be so brash as to make such an attempt. And he's referring to uh, in the invasion, the amphibious landing at Inchon. Why is it so brash? Especially when you had had the Japanese who had used it twice uh, in 1904 and in uh, 1894 during, uh, I think it was the Sino-Japanese War, I may be mistaken. But. Right, and uh, the problem is what are the Japanese, I mean, for, for the Japanese, it's, it's a different type of, of an assault. They're probably not going up against very serious forces, but simply the geographical and hydrological challenges at Incheon are unbelievable. 
Uh, to quote one of Admiral Doyle's staff officers, he goes, you could draw up a list of, of what are the don'ts you have in an amphibious landing, and Inchon had all of them. Um, the problem is, the, I mean, the biggest single problem is the gigantic tidal range, 32 feet. So when the tide's out, you uncover these huge mud flats in some places, you know, two miles wide. Um, the currents are exceedingly swift. Uh, the, the low currents are two to three knots. When you're dealing with stuff at an ass, you know, uh, high, the absolute high tides, it's five to six knots. Not something you want to operate small uh, boats in. Um, and also, it's like there's there's no easy way to get there. There's there's essentially two channels into Inchon, both of them fairly narrow. Again, swift currents. Um, not an easy place to operate into. Plus, in the harbor itself, you you have an island that sort of sticks out from the place, Womido which oversees the harbor. So that's a threat to any place you might uh, attempt to land. Plus, you're essentially landing in a city. And it's not just even a traditional city. This is a place that, you know, it's a handful of docks, seawalls, stone seawalls designed to keep out these, these huge rises, salt pans, and as one officer said, you know, rocks with patches of sand. Um, it, it's not a hospitable place to uh, try to land in. So you've got all that going for whoever's on the defense. And, um, and that was one of the things that MacArthur was banking on, that the North Koreans didn't really think anybody would try this. And in all honesty, uh, many of the U.S. naval officers and planners were, you know, they were like, oh, my God, what what do we have to do to get in here? And um, in the there's there's a famous briefing of and, and there's a lot of concerns about this landing back in Washington. And, um, you know, even attempting to do it, you know, much later, we're now into August. Um, the JCS sends out representatives, including uh, Admiral Sher for Sherman, who's the CNO, uh, General J. Lawton Collins, who's Chief of Staff of the Army, um, to be briefed by MacArthur and by the staffs about, okay, how will this work? What do you see happening? And Admiral Doyle, who is the amphibious person in the Far East, when he concludes his briefing, he says, the best thing I can say about Inchon is it is not impossible. And um, which, you know, didn't, didn't give people a, 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 you know, a really, really happy feeling. But um, there, there were lots, there were lots of things to overcome. I mean, one of the problems that the U.S. forces had is despite the fact that we had had occupation forces there for over two years, we really didn't know a lot about the place. We hadn't really worried about it. We didn't have current intelligence about the place. Where are you going to find the assets to do this? Where did they find the assets? I mean, this, you mentioned the small boats and the problems with, with the tides. Yeah. Do they just quickly construct them, or, or are they getting them from elsewhere? No. This, one of the things, again, that, that you know, the U.S. is fortunate about is that this occurs 
five years after the end of World War II. And the, the assets you have to use, I mean, first off, you take care, you take advantage of everything you have in hand. You don't have a lot in hand, but you take advantage of what you've got, which includes, okay, everybody that knows anything about Inchon, sit them down, have them write stuff down. We don't know enough. They assemble a team under a Navy lieutenant who's a Mustang, a former LST commander, attack transport commander, and he assembles a team and they actually go into an island off Inchon to start collecting intelligence and data and confirming that, well, what what we do know is, is it correct? Um, they also do have forces arriving from the West Coast. Um, in the Pusan perimeter, I mean, one of the things that, that was, uh, one of the reinforcements that comes into that from the West Coast is what's known as First uh, Marine Brigade Provisional, which is essentially built around the uh, uh, 5th Marines, a battalion of artillery, and the elements of uh, two fighter squadrons of the 33rd MAG, um, who actually are flying off two of the Jeep carriers, the escort carriers from the West Coast. They stripped off their ASW assets and put Marine fighters on board to be able to provide ground support. Well, okay, we've got that going for us, but MacArthur realizes, and, and so do his other planners, you need a larger force, and so they end up saying, okay, we need the whole 1st Marine Division. Well, 1st Marine Division is, like many other forces in the United States, severely reduced. The 2nd Marine Division on the East Coast is essentially a skeleton. Uh, usually the only full-strength battalion in 2nd uh, Marine Division at this time would be the one that was on duty with the uh, amphibious group in the Mediterranean at any given time. And so they have to pull in volunteers uh, from 2nd Mar Div, and then they start pulling them whether they volunteer or not. They pull people in from the embassies. They pull people in from recruiting duty. They bring down the guards from, or at least some of the guards, from the Portsmouth Naval Brig. And they realize this is not going to be enough people. And one of the things that they make the decision and Secretary of Defense approves and President approves is they mobilize the entire ground element of the Marine Corps Reserve, including the attached uh, Navy medical units. So, you know, that's, you know, roughly 10, 11,000 people that just, you're being recalled right now, assemble them at Pendleton and then, uh, get them to the Far East. Yeah, and that's, then, that's a significant portion. That's a significant mobilization. Wouldn't the Soviets have gotten wind of something like that and passed that on to the North Koreans and said, look, we've got a lot of Marines coming in. They're clearly going somewhere, and there are a limited number of places that they're going to go. Well, there's, there's two things that, that, you know, certainly that was happening the North Koreans and their sponsors are pretty confident they're going to be able to beat their way into Pusan. They don't think any of this is going to be able to happen fast enough to have any impact. And uh, so, yeah, they, they know what's going on. So there's on. a strategic importance to holding Pusan, too, as, as well. As you, you need to delay the North Korean forces, keep them held down in the south for as long as possible. You, you've got, yeah, you're buying time. 
uh, to do some other action. And and MacArthur is pushing a landing in Indochina. I mean, the, the Navy and other people on the JCF considered other landings. Uh, Kunsan, a landing in the Asan Man, these are areas south of Inchon. And um, one of the things MacArthur said, he goes, they're not going to be a deep enough envelopment. I can't do what I can do if I go in at Inchon and then I can get the soul and, and essentially choke them off. Um, but there is so much information going around, not only in the U.S., but in Japan. People know something is happening. In fact, the, the joke was that the, the nickname for it was Operation Common Knowledge. Um, because in addition to what you're seeing in the U.S., one of the other assets I said, use things in hand, we pulled LSTs out of the Shipping Control Administration Japan. This was a civilian agency because essentially we had obliterated the Japanese merchant marine and they were in World War II and we were, or the Japanese were using these LST hulls for inter island trade and, and other things. We pulled 17 of those back into U.S. service, uh, recommission them, refit them as best we can in the short time allowed. But in the long run, I, I should add, we end up actually having to use 30 of these still Japanese manned LSTs as part of the landing force at Inchon. But so you're, you're pulling all these forces together. And, you know, we've brought assets out from the West Coast, naval assets, aviation assets. Some have actually come around from the Atlantic. And in the case of the 1st Marine Division, that one full-strength battalion that 2nd Mardiv has in the Mediterranean gets sent through the Suez Canal and transitions from being a battalion of the 6th Marines to being the 3rd Battalion of the 7th Marines. <laughs> So they can fill out uh, the division. So it, it, it's a, a massive, massive effort. And again, the North Koreans, other various Soviet agents, other spies, people know something is happening. We do a good job with deception operations. I, I, I must point that out. Um, we have been doing a lot of raiding uh, we, the United States, Royal Navy, the Canadian Navy, had gotten three destroyers in theater. Uh, plus, we've gotten another aircraft carrier over. So we're launching various and sundry raids, both aviation and some shore raids um, on the east and west coasts. And some of the raids in on, on the west coast are a little more, they're, they're beach reconnaissances, reconnaissances and more formal but quick landings, I mean, you know, it's not just U.S. forces. There's a Royal Marine Commando that's gotten out there by then. And so, okay, if something's coming, well, you know, they're doing things at Kunsan. They're doing things at Osan Man. They're doing things at Mokpo. They're, they're even launching operations, at least on the aviation side, up most closer to Pyongyang, actually, in North Korea. And so there's a lot of confusion about what would be going on. And again, Inchon's clearly the hardest nut to crack in that bunch. You know, the, there were a lot of people who were like, let's land at Kunsan. But, you know, MacArthur said this will not achieve the objective. What did they find on the morning of, of September 15th, 1950? On the morning of the 15th, you know, got to step back. A uh, couple of days, we send ships in on the 13th. We realize the island I mentioned earlier, Womido, in the middle of the harbor. 
there had been what appeared to be, from what we could tell from reconnaissance, both aerial and actually some of Clark's people actually in the harbor, including walking around on the mudflats, this looked to be fairly well defended. So it was attacked heavily with aviation elements, uh, essentially, as uh, several of the Marine Corps officers described it, shaved bare by napalm attacks um, with aviation assets. But we said, okay, we need to go in and do more work do more shore bombardment. And again, this is a very, very difficult place to operate. Narrow channel, high-speed currents. They actually sail in a force of U.S. and Royal Navy uh, destroyers and cruisers on the 13th. And on the way in, they see the biggest single threat that, you know, they knew they had to worry about in the back of their mind, but they were hoping hadn't worked yet. Mines. Mines are the easiest way to shut up some place like this. And in fact, where they actually spotted a small minefield um, had been an area where British and Canadian ships had sat and shelled Inchon uh, earlier in August. So, you know, they don't have any mine warfare ships with them. They've got very few in the Far East. And because there are so few escorts to bring up the main force those mine warfare ships are actually asking, or pardon me, acting as uh, their escorts for the transports. Well, as soon as they see mines, it's like, you who we need them up here as quickly as possible. Minesweepers don't move real fast. So they're literally shooting at the mines from 40 millimeters down to guys with M1 Garands. And, and they tell off a destroyer, take care of the mines. When they go in and actually conduct the shelling, and they actually anchor, and they let the rising tide turn them, so they don't got to turn this channel. One of the destroyer captains, who extensive experience in the Second World War's mine warfare officer, notices in one of the, you know, not normal target areas that they had uh, considered piles of mines, and not just the contact mines, which they'd seen out there. He's seen influence mines. What's an influence mine? Influence mine is bottom-laid mine, and you have a ship that goes over it, and either by motion speed, magnetic anomaly, it detonates. Those are the real threat, and we see what happens with that in Wonsan the next month in October. But this destroyer captain's like, that's a real problem. Change target. And he puts enough five-inch fire on it until it just detonates. Um, but and, and again, that's one of the things where, where we were uh, lucky in the fact that it, if they'd had another three, four, seven, ten days, would they have been able to have done a better job mining? But that was... So we go in, we launch the, you know... We shell, we come back out, we make the decision we need a second day. They go back in on the 14th, do a second day of shelling, come back out before the main attack goes in on the 15th. Now, one of the challenges about the landing on the 15th is you have to do it in two stages, and you've got to do it at absolute high tide um, because otherwise you've got these huge mud flats to deal with. So the first landing is on Wolmido Island, about 0630, Green Beach, where they send in a battalion of the 5th Marines to seize this island um, 
heavily supported air support by marine air support. They grab it. There is also a causeway from this island that leads into Inchon. But this is very, very quickly seized. All the bombardment, all the shelling had, had had good effect for our forces. And so you grab that, you continue to shell and attack various targets in Inchon, but now you've got to wait for the evening high tide. So you can get the guys against Red Beach, which is to the north, Blue Beach to the south, Red Beach is essentially a straight run in and LCVPs right up against the seawall in most places. Blue Beach, you're actually going to have the first several wave go in in Amtrak's, which literally had been pulled out of storage in Barstow, California, reconditioned and hauled over to the Far East. Not terribly well reconditioned in some cases. Uh, late General uh, uh, Simmons of the Marine Corps uh, who ran Marine Corps history for many, many years. He's actually a major in the first Marines, and he's in one of the first waves on Blue Beach in an LVT, and he realizes, okay, my my driver, what what is going on here? We're, you know, he said, we can't see the shore because he said there's so much smoke and rain and stuff. There's stuff drifting down from Red Beach to north of him. He's like, we're not moving in a straight line. So he goes down and he looks at the compass. Compass is just spinning around wildly because nobody had redone the magnetization to make sure that it would work. And he smacks the driver and he's like, he goes, do you know what you're doing? He goes, sir, six weeks ago I was driving a truck in San Francisco. He hadn't been in LVT since 1945. Um, So they've got a lot of stuff that they've got to overcome. But the thing with, with Blue Beach is if the tide recedes there, there's where you've got the, you know, mile plus of mudflats. So they need something that, that can get in there. But they land, and also by landing at that late in the day, it's 1730. You've only got an hour and a half left before you get darkness. So there's a lot of things that have to move very quickly. There are critical sites. Again, you're in a city. You know, we were trying to avoid what we would now referred to as collateral damage. We were trying to strike primarily the things that we knew were military targets or had military forces occupying them. We had several critical pieces of ground to seize, one which looked right over the harbor uh, and and a couple of other hills in Inchon. And when people got ashore, this was all up near Red Beach, okay, didn't have time to practice. There's no cord, you know, there's limited coordination. We don't have enough control boats to run in this many LCVPs. Things get a little bit mixed up. But guys go ashore and move to their targets. One of the great advantages, again, we have is this is five years after World War II. All of your leaders have you know, at the highest levels, have seen combat. All of your mid-level leaders have seen combat. In the Marine Corps, down to the O3 level, the company commanders, they had seen combat on Okinawa or Iwo Jima. They knew what they were doing. You come ashore, things are not like they're supposed to be. This is the target we need to take, move. You know, company commanders, platoon commanders, and, and, and I should not just mention the officers. It's the non-commissioned officers. Again, many of these men, combat veterans from World War II, who, okay, we need to show initiative. We, it's all been laid out to us. We don't sit and wait. We move. 
And one of the other things too on Red Beach, and again, this was part of the interesting planning concept of how do you deal with this, is the tide's gonna go out. How do you sustain these guys overnight? And one of the decisions they made was, we're gonna run eight LSTs up on what little open area you've got on Red Beach and just beach them. And we're leaving them there all night. They're just gonna sit on the mud flats and they're gonna be there where they can be unloaded, provide supplies. And in fact, the planners were convinced that on the run in, they would lose two of the eight which they did not do. And one of the things they did to make sure that the logistics would work is all the LSTs carried the same logistical loadout for ammunition, medical, fuel, because, okay, if we lose one, we lose two, we're not gonna be screwed that we don't have X because that one was lost. But luckily all eight of them get in and, um, and in fact, unfortunately, because again, darkness is starting to fall, some of the LSTs, you know, they're receiving fire from shore and they just open up somewhat wildly, unfortunately hitting some of our own Marines, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it's all part of this thing of how do you overcome, you know, the terrible challenges here. What was the result of the landing? The landing was highly successful. Um, despite all the difficulties, we managed to get ashore, we maintain our position, we continue to bring in reinforcements during uh, the next day, Marines start moving towards Seoul, moving toward Kempo Airfield, which was important to seize because the, the North Koreans did not destroy Kempo. So once you get Kempo taken, you can get the Marine fighters off the uh, escort carriers in ashore and the Air Force is flying in the logistics. And you also get the 7th uh, U.S. Army Infantry Division, which comes ashore administratively to reinforce um, the 1st Marine Division. They're moving more toward the south because forces have started pushing out of Pusan now. And the North Koreans are like, oh, my God, they, they're going to choke us to death. And the Marines have a very nasty fight uh, once they start getting into the outskirts of Seoul. But Seoul is taken by the 29th of September. So at that point, you know, you have obtained the larger strategic objective that MacArthur had and MacArthur understood because he had the strategic mobility. You control the sea, you control the air over it. You can utilize your forces to envelop and force an enemy back because one of uh, MacArthur's great fears was if we have to force our way out of Pusan and we end up fighting a long battle through the fall and winter through South Korea, this is going to be a bloodbath. If we do this, we force the North Koreans to either withdraw or to, you know, they can stand and fight and get pounded between the anvil that is in China and the hammer that is coming out of Pusan. Last question, and this is probably the most important one out of this, is why is the Inchon landing in 1950 considered so significant in U.S. naval history? Again, it clearly demonstrates what you can do if you've got control of the sea, you've got control of the air, and you have the assets, and you have a skilled set of leaders, a skilled amphibious force. What you can do to utilize these things to uh, alleviate 
you know, rather unpleasant ground combat. I mean, again, we'd seen this used many times in, in World War II. MacArthur did it in New Guinea. Patton did it in Sicily, where you can use your control of the sea and the air to, to envelop the enemy and force it out. Now, one other thing to consider, too, is, you know, with all the downsizing and fighting in the late 40s about the U.S. military, uh, one of the calls had been to, you know, severely reduce, if not eliminate, uh, the Marine Corps. Harry Truman infamously referred to it as, well, you know, it's the Navy's police force. And on the morning, you know, at, you know, on the day, I should say, of the landing at Incheon, you know, um, Fleet Marine Force Pacific Commander uh, Lieutenant General Shepard was actually on the ship MacArthur was on. And given the success of the day, he turned to Shepard and said, you have just guaranteed the existence of the Marine Corps for 100 years. Curtis, thanks for coming by. Curtis Hutz, Naval History and Heritage Command historian. We really appreciate coming out here, and it's good to see you back here. All right. Glad to be here. Thanks. And for our listeners, thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed the program, please share the, the news with other folks and Leave some feedback on one of the platforms you're listening to this, and have a great day. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.